So we are going to wrap up what I've been doing for three weeks, and it uh, has been a sermon series that's been based on uh, some scripture out of the book of Mark, and we've called this series the Jesus Creed. Uh, we started this at Oak Grove the week before last, and had a second part uh, last week over at Brockton. I'm going to try to bring it all together, um, concluding today. But I want to cite that scripture for you real quick, and you don't have to look that up if you don't want to. But if you want to, it's Mark 12, 28 through 31. <clears throat> and in that scripture, Jesus is teaching, and one of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies to him. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So we are, over the last few weeks, we are, we are trying to live into that and find out exactly what Christ meant by that and how that reflects, how we can reflect that, or how we are called, rather, to reflect that in our own lives. And if you will recall, the main point that we really tried to drive home a couple weeks here when we talked about this was to notice and understand and really ingest the fact that what Jesus said here is that loving our neighbor is just as important in the eyes of God as loving him. I didn't say that. Jesus says that right there in the scripture. When he says the second is like it, the actual translation of that is that these two are equal. They carry the same amount of weight in the eyes of God, and that ought to, that ought to shock us today just as it would have shocked them 2,000 years ago. There were two portions of this, just as a reminder. When Jesus uh, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he was quoting something that they called the Shema. It was a very sacred Jewish prayer. You can find it in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And that's the hero Israel, love the Lord your God, um, etc. Very sacred prayer in the Jewish tradition. Still is a sacred prayer. Mary and Joseph would have taught Jesus this prayer. They would get up in the morning and they would pray it. They would pray it at night. And they would pray it throughout the day as it, uh, as it came to them. And it remains, again, very sacred prayer in the Jewish tradition. He followed that up with a verse from Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. And he combined those things. He said these are the two greatest commandments. As we all know, there are about 613 some odd laws and commandments in the Old Testament. Jesus brought them back down to two. And he said that loving God and loving your neighbor, our neighbors, carry the same amount of weight. And that was the main point, uh, again, here at, uh, here at Oak Grove a couple weeks back. And what I encourage you to do is I encourage you guys to start praying that, using that, utilizing that scripture in your prayer lives. Now, that's, that doesn't sound like a prayer, does it? It's, you know, when we go to God in prayer, it's generally, hey, God, I love you. Give me this. I need this. Help me out with this. Help me out with this. But we can quote this as a prayer, okay? And I told you guys, and I told Broxton again, we cite the Apostles' Creed a lot. In the Methodist tradition, we cite the Apostles' Creed along with, along with a lot of other uh, church traditions. Um, that's also a prayer, okay? And that doesn't sound like a prayer, does it? It's an affirmation of faith, so to speak, but it's also a prayer of faith that we can certainly offer to God. I, I do it very, very often. So when you look at these words in Mark, think of them as a prayer. If, if, the, if the Apostles' Creed is an affirmation or a prayer of faith, then, then that what we're calling the Jesus Creed here in Mark 12, 28-31 is an affirmation or a prayer of action. These are the things that Christ said are most important to him and most important to God. 
everything else falls up under that. As followers of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, this is what we're called to live out in our daily lives. And we did that last week a little in Broxton. We dove a little bit deeper into looking exactly what that means. Because um, most of us probably believe we, we love our neighbor, right? Most of us probably don't. We're not totally insensitive all the time. We probably don't go around beating people up and, and, and certainly intentionally harming people. But I asked us all to think a little bit deeper into that. Think a little bit deeper into that idea of how much I really love my neighbor. Because the fact of the matter is the idea of loving our neighbors oftentimes clashes with the reality of loving our neighbors. And what I asked them to do, what I reminded them to do and, and uh, suggested that they do is to write some stuff down. Now, you can do this in your mind right now if you want to. I don't expect you to write it down here. But think about all those people in your lives that rub you the wrong way. Y'all are thinking of people right now. Probably specific people, some of you. Think about all those people that rub us the wrong way. Maybe it's an individual. Maybe, maybe it's a group of people. Very oftentimes, they're groups of people. We love to categorize people. We like to put people into certain categories. And as a response to that, we dislike certain people who we throw a label on. Well, Christ says that's not right. All of us do it. So that's just a reminder that maybe, maybe we don't love our neighbor. Maybe it is a literal neighbor. Maybe it's literally your next door neighbor. But that's a reminder to, to keep in our hearts that, yeah, we probably don't love our neighbor as ourselves as much as we, we probably, probably think that we do. But it's what we're called to do. And I reminded them again last week of 1 John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16. Everybody, everybody here can probably quote that from your heart. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Everybody's been taught that if you've been going to church. Most of us probably don't know 1 John 3.16, which tells us exactly what loving our neighbor looks like. And this ought to hit every one of us straight through the heart. Here's what the author of 1 John writes, again, in 1 John 3.16, which should make it pretty easy for us to remember where this scripture is. He writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others. One more time. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That is exactly what it looks like, what Christ is talking about when he said the, second com the greatest commandment right alongside loving God is loving our neighbors, is to lay down our lives for them. Now, a lot of us have probably heard this scripture quoted, and we've talked, we, we probably have probably heard some sermons or some speeches uh, where we have gotten to the point where maybe we think that laying down our lives literally means that we would take a bullet for somebody, right? Y'all probably have heard those speeches, those sermons in that context, and that may very well be the case. There may be a time that comes up in our lives where we are called to literally lay down our lives for somebody. It's happened. It's happened many times. Christ wasn't the only one. Look throughout the church history, you'll find all kinds of martyrs, all kinds of people who were killed for the sake of the gospel. Maybe that is us, but that's not the end of it. That's not the only way that we lay down our lives for others. Laying down our lives is powerful words. It's powerful words. It means that we get rid of all selfishness. It means that we get rid of all of our egos, all of our prejudices, 
all of those, and this is so important, so important because I'm guilty of it, and I would, I would venture to guess that we're all guilty of this, setting aside all of those inconveniences that pass our path on a daily basis. Loving our neighbor is always, always, always inconvenient. Opportunities to love our neighbor does not happen in our time. As much as we would like it to do, take it from me. As much as I would like to, to, to be able to schedule these opportunities on my calendar to love my neighbor, that ain't how it happens. These things pop up like that. They're spontaneous. And we all know that. Loving our neighbor, truly sacrificing, once again, laying down our lives, most of the time is going to be inconvenient to us. And that's, again, what we are called to do. I gave Broxton one more example, one more wonderful example of one of my favorite scriptures that takes this just a little bit deeper, and I've got to read it to you. I am breezing through this, y'all, so I hope y'all can, hope I'm not going too fast, but I got a lot of notes up here. And that's from Matthew 25, and I, I, I have preached on this before, and y'all, everybody here has probably heard me say, quote these scriptures before, but I don't think you can really do it enough. It's at the very end of Matthew 25, and I'm just going to read 42 through 46. Crystal caught me last week when I did it at Brock's, and I was reading the wrong ones. And again, you don't have to look it up. You can ask me later or go back and listen to it. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us exactly the kind of people that we're supposed to love. And you can't tell me that these people are easy to get along with, and you can't tell me that matters like this are going to be convenient for us when they prop up in our lives. But here's what he says. He says, therefore, hold on, I about did it again, Crystal. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was, in, I was sick and I was in prison and you did not come to visit me. You did not come to look after me. So those will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or when did we see you thirsty or when did we see you a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? When did we see these things and not help you? And Jesus will reply to them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you also did not do for me. Now, if that doesn't punch us straight in the throat, I don't know what does. Hungry, thirsty, naked prison, sick, when are those things convenient for us? When are those opportunities convenient for us to love our neighbor? Some of those folks, when are, the, are those the easiest folks a lot of times? No, let's be honest. I didn't tell Broxton this one. Uh, I didn't quote this last script, the, the follow-up to that last week, but I'm going to give it to you now. Jesus concludes that statement with this, and then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at that scripture, and people have certainly argued certain points of that scripture throughout the centuries. But the one thing that cannot be argued is Jesus is certainly serious about this. He's not playing around. He says to some degree or another, whatever that degree may be, and I'm not preaching faith by works, I would never do that. But to some degree, we're going to be judged by the way we treat Christ calls the least of these in those scriptures. There's no two ways around that. That is how we're called to love. Is this making anybody uncomfortable yet? It makes me uncomfortable. But I want you to get this idea. I want you to get the idea, the knowledge, and hopefully soak this in, that it is difficult to love people. But it is exactly what Christ expects, what Christ wants for us. It's exactly our calling.
challenge, the challenge is loving all of those people that just went through your heads a few minutes ago, our heads. So we're going to shift a little bit um, from Mark and our Jesus Creed, and we're going to shift over to a different book in the Bible, a different book in the New Testament to get an even, I think, an even broader idea of what some of these ideas look like. We're going to be picking up some scriptures from the book of James in several different places. So again, I'm going to try my best to breeze through this. I don't feel like you have to look at every scripture. Uh, if you want to get them from me later, that's, that's perfectly great. Um, but I want to remind you of a couple of things real quick before we read these scriptures. Number one, if you didn't know, James was the half-brother of Jesus. The author of the epistle, James, is, is the half-brother of Jesus. He would have been Joseph and Mary's natural son. So he lived with Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He ate together with Jesus. They, maybe they went to school together. I don't know, but certainly they were brothers and they were close. James also eventually, following Jesus' death, he eventually became a major church leader. He was the leader. He was the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And I tend to think that, Jesus, that James probably knew more about Jesus than most people that we read about in the Bible, if for no other reason than the fact that he was his half-brother. He grew up with him from childbirth. He knew Jesus from childbirth. Uh, they grew up together. He would know um, exactly what he said, exactly who he was, exactly how he carried himself, what he taught, and how he lived out what he taught. And James challenges us. James, James, James. James will take you about 20 minutes to read the entire book all the way through, but it'll take you a lifetime to soak that stuff in and try and attempt to live these things out. But that's where we're going to get some of our scriptures from today. Um, in the second chapter of James, we see, <laughs> we see a scene in the first century church that we also see very common and uh, very difficult today. I'm going to read you from first, from James 2, 1 through 4, and then we're going to skip over to verse 8. So James addresses some things that are clearly going on in this first century church, and uh, I think most of us, not necessarily here at Oak Grove or Broxton, but most of us can probably identify or at least relate to some degree what James is about to talk about here. We've either witnessed or ourselves, and maybe we've even participated in ourselves. So starting in verse 1 in James chapter 2, James writes, My brothers and my sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes, I'm going to change these words up just a little bit to give it a more today context. Suppose somebody comes into our church, our sanctuary, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And suppose a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. Y'all got the picture? Y'all picturing this in your mind? Get, get a picture of this, seriously. Suppose a poor man comes in. If we show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and we say, here, here's a nice seat for you. But we say to the poor man, you stand over there and you sit on the floor by my feet. Have, we not, have you not discriminated against yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And here James really drives it home. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's somebody else quoting, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing it right. But if we show favoritism, we sin. 
and we are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Has anybody ever, I'm not, <laughs> don't raise your hands, but has anybody ever experienced this? Has anybody ever seen this? I have. I've seen it in the church before where people are favored. Now this isn't against, this, at the end of the day, what, what he's talking about here is not against rich or wealth. It's against favoritism. Okay, let's, let's make, I want to make that clear real quick. This is not an argument against the wealthy. It is about favoritism. And certainly, certainly, I'm going to venture to guess that at bare minimum, 90% of the folks in this room have at least witnessed that at some point. How we treat certain people in the church as opposed to how we treat other people. James says that's not right. Jesus says that's not right. He says that's not God-like. That's not of God. He confronts us. He confronts the church and he confronts today's church with our partiality of showing favoritism. All of our prejudices, all of our biases for or against certain people. We had an opportunity last week at Broxton to live that out. We had two unexpected visitors show up to our outdoor service. And uh, no, they're not members of our church. They're not people who would... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say these are folks who probably have not been to a church in a very, very long time. They showed up dirty. They showed up tattered clothes. One of them came to get some food from a blessing box. He did not hang around, and that's fine. Another one did hang around, and he actually blessed us and graced us with singing along with Crystal's keyboard playing during the service. It's pretty awesome. Highlight of my week, actually. And it made me happy. I'm not saying that to, to brag or to be prideful, but it did make me happy. Our response, our congregation's response made me happy. But again, I'm sure everybody can recall from personal experience times where the case was not so. Are there certain groups of people, are there certain groups of people that we show a particular favoritism or a particular prejudice? Not just in a church service outside of the church service, not just as the local congregation, but as individuals. Are there certain people that we show partiality or favoritism? Are there certain people that we do not see or regard as our equals? I hope it challenges you guys as much as it challenges me. There is no distinction in the body of Christ. There is no distinction as individual followers of Christ for preferential treatment of anybody. Christian love and hospitality is extended to all. All. For no other reason that they are people created in the image of Jesus. James gives us another example of what it looks like to love our neighbors as ourselves over in chapter 1. It, too, is going to be very challenging for us. Maybe even slightly confrontational, but that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for us. It confronts us. It confronts us with our sins. And there's no other word for that, folks. It confronts us with, it confronts us with our sins, and it challenges us to live into that call that we talk about in the Jesus Creed. To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and equally to love our neighbor as ourselves. Hopefully it guides us into becoming true and authentic disciples of Christ. James 1.27 James 
James 1, 27, one little verse, just a couple pages over. Now check this out. James, the brother of Jesus, writes that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pure religion, pure and undefiled religion, some of your translations may say, that God our Father accepts and as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows. Who's ever thought about that before? We find mention of or orphans and widows and the marginalized throughout Scripture. You'll, you'll see it very, very early on in the Old Testament. It runs all the way to the end of the Bible. This is not something that we can deny. Is God's, God's calling and God's, God's love for orphans, widows, and the marginalized. James, James is just repeating other Scripture and certainly repeating Christ here in these words. But this is where it gets hard, isn't it? Because it's very easy for us to look the other way. It's easy to call ourselves or think of ourselves as compassionate all the way up until the time where it's actually time for us to be compassionate. It's easy to disregard. We've, I've certainly seen it these last several months, especially as it pertains to our elderly. It's easy to disregard those that society has deemed unnecessary any longer. That should break our hearts, but that should also make us a little bit mad with some righteous indignation, I think. Pure religion is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Religion that God says is pure and undefiled. Let me remind everybody that indifference is sin. We're not called to turn our heads. We're called to walk into these places with people, to love people, to be uncomfortable, to allow it to be inconvenient. Indifference is sin. When James wrote this during the first century and during the time of him and Jesus, here's an interesting little side note. An orphan was not considered somebody without two parents. An orphan was considered somebody without one parent. So if your father passed away, you still had your mother, you were still considered an orphan in this culture. Here's another interesting side note. Most people believe that Joseph passed away, at least prior to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which would have made Mary a widow, and it would have made Jesus and James and the rest of their siblings orphans by those cultural standards. So James would have known. James would have known what it felt like to be an orphan in that culture. He would have known what it felt like to be treated hospitably. Somebody help me with the word. Hospitably. Or inhospitably. He would have experienced that stuff firsthand. I think that James knew what he's talking about. Let me give you a few facts here. Right now today, there are approximately 143 million orphans around the globe. Right now, there are approximately one million orphan children being trafficked into sex slave annually. 
Approximately 8 million are currently working as slaves. Over 2.5 million orphan children currently have HIV-AIDS. How are we doing as the body of Christ in the world? Is our religion pure and undefiled? What about the widows he speaks of? Again, Mary would have been a widow. James would have gotten to witness firsthand how being a widow in this culture affected her socially, economically, spiritually, emotionally, practically. James knew what he was talking about. He had been there. He'd done that. One of the coolest things that I came across while I was preparing this sermon was, was an article from 2008. And it was written by a lady by the name of Miriam Neff in Christianity Today magazine. And I think that I think this sums up beautifully. Again, there's nothing like personal experience to be able to talk to stuff, to be able to talk about a subject with other people and explain it. There's nothing like personal experience. And I want to read you about three paragraphs of what she wrote at the beginning of this article. She wrote, I am part of the fastest growing demographic in the United States. We are targeted by new home builders and surveyed by designers. We are a lucrative niche for health and beauty products and financial planners invite us to dinner. It's no wonder that the marketers are after us. 800,000 join our ranks every year. Who are we? We are the invisible among you, the widows. Studies show that widows lose 75% of their friendship network when they lose a spouse. 60% of us experience serious health issues in that first year. One third of us meet the criteria for clinical depression in the first month or after one's spouse's death. And half of us remain, remain clinically depressed a year later. Most experience financial decline. One pastor described us by saying that we move from the front row of the church to the back, and then out the door. We move from serving and singing in a choir to solitude and silent sobbing, and then on to a place where we belong. Pure and undefiled religion, according to James, the brother of Jesus, is to look after widows in their distress. Is our religion pure and undefiled? Or are we just tossing people to the side when it's inconvenient or when they can't give us anything? One more thing I want to point out from James is found in three, chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And I think that what we're about to read here is about one of the most profound things that we could, that we could embrace right now, particularly in our own culture. James 3, verses 7 through 10. James writes this. He says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. We can tame animals, right? But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a rest, it's restless evil full of deadly poison. Here he goes. With the tongue we praise our Lord and our Father, and with the same tongue we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. 
Out of the mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Again, I hope that punches everybody in the throat as much as it punches me in the throat. Jesus talked about the tongue very often. Jesus also said this in Luke 6, verse 45. He said, whatever comes out of your mouth is what is in your heart. I can't remember exactly how he words it. Whatever the mouth speaks, our, house, our hearts are full of. Whatever comes out of the mouth comes out of the fullness or what lies inside our spirits, our hearts. Again, I can't imagine a more applicable lesson for today's culture. How do our words reflect our hearts? How do we talk to people? How do we talk about people? How do we reflect Christ? This doesn't apply to most folks in this room, but how do we reflect Christ with our little social media accounts? I think if James were allowed alive today, he would replace that word tongues with fingertips. Whatever lies at the end of your fingertips comes out of the fullness of your heart. Do we have the minds of Christ? Well, let's go back to Matthew 25. How do we feel when we talk about those that... What words do we use based on the condition of our hearts? How do we feel when we talk about the ones that Christ called the least of these? The hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. How many of us have heard comments like this? that like to demoralize and demean the poor, the hungry, the naked, the thirsty. How many of us have heard things like if they'd just get a job, they'd be all right. If they weren't so sorry, they wouldn't be naked and eating clothes. We like to avoid compassion because it's inconvenient. We like to offer simple answers to very complex situations when it comes to Jesus called, who Jesus called the least of these. Simple answers. And my opinion is, I can certainly tell you what, I've done it. We just want to avoid it. We ain't got time for that. So we call them lazy. We call them sorry. We demean very often. Not everybody, not all the time, but it happens. And I know y'all have heard it before. How about those in prison? We're pretty well content a lot of times with just knowing that they're locked away and tossed away. Jesus calls us to special attention for those who are in prison. We like to say they're getting what they deserve, and maybe they are. But is that where our hearts are for the ones Jesus called the least of these? What about the sick? What about the substance abusers? What about those with the mental and emotional distress? It's easy to turn our compassion off to people who are doing stuff or maybe acting in ways that we don't find acceptable. It's easy to give short answers, cut them off, than it is to engage the very people that Jesus said we would be judged by and how we treat them and how we react to them. Or the stranger. And I'm not talking about your next door neighbor. The person on the street. The foreigner. How do we talk about foreigners? You can find that throughout the New Testament. God's got a lot of stuff to say about that. After the church service last week, I wrote an article about that service, and I titled it, Jesus Visited Our Church. So if y'all got the newsletter, y'all saw it. I actually put on my little, my little blog thing that nobody reads. 
But the title of it was Jesus Visited Our Church because that's exactly what Jesus did at our church last Sunday. He visited us in the form of two men. In the form of two men that didn't quite fit. And I was again proud. I was happy. I was pleased with the way we reacted to them. But I got to ask myself, how do I act when nobody's looking? Is this always the case? Do I embrace or do I turn away? How do I react when nobody's looking? When we show compassion, church, the, the world sees Jesus and they see the gospel in action. There's no other way. Demeaning people, demoralizing people, turning our backs on people who really need us because it's inconvenient or because it's just a little bit easier to, to turn the other cheek, turn the other way. That's not how we're going to do it. People aren't going to respond to the gospel that way. We can't claim a bunch of self-righteousness and, 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 and harsh judgment and expect people to be drawn into the body of Christ. Because that ain't love. <laughs> That's not love. The only way that we do that is through the hard way. And that is real compassion and the real love that Christ calls us to. That's the tough part. I talk about love a lot. And y'all know that. And I've said this before. I'm not talking about this. This I'm not talking about hippie love. <laughs> I'm not talking about flowers and rainbows and that type of stuff. Embrace everything and just, just love everybody. That's easy. That's simple. The kind of love we're called to as Christians is, is hard. Compassion is hard. And it's uncomfortable. And it's difficult. But we're called to it. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will change us if we will allow Him to do so. Again, we have the Bible for that very purpose. I don't think I talked to you all about this out here a couple weeks ago. But that's one of the reasons, the primary reasons that we have that, that, that Bible, those 66 books. Because the Holy Spirit works through what we call the Word of God, the written Word of God. When we approach the Bible, hopefully, what we're doing is we're approaching it with the hope that God is going to change. I don't know about y'all, but I'm messed up. I'm still a sinner, folks. I've still got stuff that I struggle with. Any preacher that tells you otherwise is a liar or a fool. I want to be changed today. I want God to change my heart, and He has in many, 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 many ways. My wife will testify for that. My son will testify to that. But I'm not done. i got a long way to go. And I want God to transform my heart. I want to be able to practice that difficult compassion for people. I want to love people and love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's one of the reasons that we have that written Word of God too often we approach the Word of God trying to get educated, and that's fine. You know, we like to learn facts and, 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 and discuss doctrine, and I, and I love all that stuff too. It's got its purpose. Primary reason that we have Scripture is to know the character of God, which we certainly have found out in the Jesus Creed, and to allow Him to work through that. Not only as we read it, but as we draw it in. As we open in ourselves, it reveals the will of God. We're talking about what God's will is, not my will, not what I want, not what I believe even. 
The Bible reveals the Word of God, and that's why we have it. Open that thing up. Drink it in. There's some, there's some scripture. Where is it, Diane? Isaiah, where he talks, he talks about eat this, eating the scroll. I don't want you to literally eat your Bible. But yes, we ingest those words, those holy, holy, sacred words as the very will of God. And we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us. And I can't tell you guys how to do that. I told Broxton that last week. I can't tell people how to do that. I can't teach myself, much less anybody else, how to open up your hearts and, and to get to that point of, of, of willful submissiveness and obedience. I hope that we all can get to that point someday. Open that Bible. Read about the character of God. If it conflicts, by the way, with what you think, then you're wrong. <laughs> the Bible's supposed to do that. <laughs> it convicts me very, pretty frequently. And I have to admit, I'm wrong about stuff. I like being wrong these days. I like finding out that I've, that I, that I've misacted or misthought. Because you know what happens? My heart gets changed. And I start acting a little bit more like this, like we're talking about today. I think that Jesus Creed will help us in doing that. I think that's one of the reasons that, that we have these words in the Bible. If we'll embrace this, and I encourage you to do it as, uh, as I said, the, the uh, early Jews still do the Shema. Try getting up and praying it. You know, what if I, what if I prayed these words and, 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 and had these words, surrounded myself with these words every day? Love the Lord God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. What if I said that when I woke up, when I when, prayed that when I woke up, prayed that when I go to bed at night, prayed it throughout the day. I've started doing that. I did it for a while. I backed off of it and I've started doing it again. And I can see the change, folks. I'm not going to lie to you. There have been certain times throughout these last couple of weeks where I've, where I've been doing that. And I, can, I have reacted differently in certain situations where I would have acted a dissimilar way. And I really believe, I truly believe that the Holy Spirit does that. I think the Bible does that. That's what we're called to be. Not who we want to be, but who God calls us to be. Y'all pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for one another. Thank you for our church family. God, this is a difficult, difficult calling that you have placed in the hands of sinners and, and imperfect people. But we want it, God. We want it. We, we want to look like Jesus. We want to invite people to, to embrace and to live out the gospel. And the only way that we can do that is by actually caring for them. Help us to do that. Help us to get rid of our selfishness, our egos, our pride, and our prejudices. Help us to embrace you and your gospel, that your glory might be known, that your kingdom might be known. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.